0: Welcome back to Salted Hash. My name is Steve Reagan with CSO Online. And today we're going to talk about the one-year anniversary of the Dyne Inc. attacks. You may remember this last year, most of the East Coast and data centers across the country lost connectivity because uh, some script kiddie decided to start playing with some IoT botnets and, well, things got out of hand rather quickly. Uh, To bring you up to speed on some things uh, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, PlayStation Network, Tumblr, uh, Netflix, SoundCloud, GitHub, all of these things went offline because of cameras, DVRs and other Internet of Things, these little devices that ship and connect to your, your home wireless that have little to no security thought put into them. Now, as the East Coast and most of the internet was melting down around this time last year, everybody was panicked, running around with their heads on fire. But we have somebody in the studio with us today that has a little bit of a, a unique perspective as to what it took to overcome all of those problems. With me now is Josh Shaw from Akamai. And you have a, an interesting background. Tell me a little bit about what was happening around this time when that botnet was taken off.
1: So it was uh, an interesting time for us for sure. And my story there really started in July of 2016 mm-hmm. when Akamai discovered a botnet that we called Kitan. Now Kitan was going after IoT devices and in that, in the malware code itself, we found a bunch of usernames and passwords, well-known usernames and passwords for malware devices. But the, the malware itself was really basic at that time. It didn't have much of an ability to spread. Now ma- Kitan, eventually ended up turning into what we call Mirai or what was named Mirai. And we saw it really first rear its head on September 21st of last year when it fired off a huge DDo- DDoS attack against Krebs on Security, which was a site that Akamai was protecting at the time. Time, that was the biggest attack the internet had ever seen. It was about 620 gig per second, with the previous record being about 360 gig per second. So it was a huge escalation in attacker capability. And when we looked at the attack, it was coming from hundreds of thousands of devices in different places around the world, although the traffic was heavily focused on our Frankfurt Scrubbing Center. Uh, We saw about a third of the traffic hit that one scrubbing center, so a lot of traffic was clearly coming from Eastern Europe.
0: So uh, not too long after it hit Krebs, uh, it also took out OVH, right? They went after them as well.
1: So a couple days later, we saw OVH talking about an 800 gigabit per second, maybe even a terabit per second Mm -hmm. attack against their systems. And at the time, this this malware, this botnet that was out there was sort of unnamed, unknown. We had the suspicion that it was Chitin, that it evolved, but we didn't know yet. And it was about ten days after that Krebs attack on October first that the malware for Mirai and, and the name Mirai came out and got published online, and folks really started talking about it and thinking about it.
0: So let, let's put a, a little thing in perspective. Um, some of you watching this may understand what he's talking about when he talks about rates of DDoS attacks, but to those of you who don't know, at the time, you know one. What what, what, one gigabit was where the theoretical upper limit on OVH was? I mean,
1: one terabit, one terabit, yeah.
0: So, we're talking some of the largest DDoS attacks seen. I mean, these are extremely powerful and very hard to deal with. And the fact that they were coming from what we later learned to be IP cameras, you know, just software. Um, photo I'm about to throw up on screen for you is a list of passwords. Now, what these passwords are, these are, are how Mirai was able to spread between these devices. We're talking default credentials that are not only easily guessable, are widely published on the Internet. And so these are all the hard-coded things that were out there, and, and some of them were just left at default settings. So it's going to connect through, and it's running through all this stuff. This is why it was spreading as quickly as it did. Now, when on on, on October 1st, he said, when it when, we finally got to see the code and, and, and everything that was coming out. That's when Dyne started becoming a, a thing, right? Or was it a, a little bit after that? It
1: was a little bit after that. Okay. Dyne saw their DDoS on October 21st. Okay. So a few weeks went by from the release of that Mirai code until Dyne got hit really hard. And if you actually go back and you look at the Internet and the scanning activity on ports 23 and 2323, over the months leading up to that September and October attack, you see an enormous ramp-up. In the, in the number of IPs that are participating in scanning those two ports. And the reason for that is Mirai. Mirai, at the time, was spreading through Telnet. And these devices either open the standard Telnet port, 23, or they open 2323 as their Telnet port. And that <laughs> list of usernames and passwords you showed is exactly what they were using. They'd Telnet into the open port, log right in. You're fine. Keep going. They'd log right in and they'd load the software up and uh, off things would go. So you can actually go back and you can look at that data, and Akamai's got some good, you know, really good information there. Now we didn't notice that until after, until after we'd seen the big attacks and knew what to look for.
0: So once you started, you know, seeing all these these big attacks, um, <laughs> why twenty three twenty three? Is that I mean, did somebody really think that was going to protect the the telnet port? Like nobody would guess the 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 extra range there. Or
1: is that just security through obscurity, my friend? It yeah. works almost every time. <laughs> it's just so funny
0: so the sky starts to fall the the ground becomes lava and ink seems to disappear from the east coast like everybody that uh there was something happening on netflix that week i think there was like a, a premiere or something coming around and people were excited and suddenly netflix is gone so naturally you're hearing about this what happened? It Walk a, me through that day.
1: It was a crazy day for me. Akamai runs a conference for all of our customers in the fall of every year, and it happened to be that week. And the conference runs until Friday, and I was flying home that Friday, coming home from San Francisco back to Boston. I was exhausted, and I was flying on JetBlue, and I was excited to sit in my seat, you know, plug in my headphones, and just kind of vegetate, look at the TV for a few hours, and recover a bit from a week of uh, insanity with the customers. And as I flipped through the channels, when I sat down, CNN started reporting there were internet problems. And so the first thing they were reporting was Netflix and Twitter were down. And it was unclear at at, at first, you know, what the problem was. And was it an attack? Was it an outage? Where was it going? But they quickly reported that it seemed to be a DDoS attack. And so I was sitting there with a number of Akamai colleagues that were on the plane, and we were texting each other like, hey, do you see what's going on right now? Do you see that they're reporting DDoS attack? And as that sort of flight evolved, it went from just DDoS to DDoS against Dyne to terabit per second DDoS against Dyne. The, the sortie just kind of continued to evolve. Now we're sitting on this flight, a bunch of Akamai folks who are responsible for either the security business or the communication about that business externally, and we're trying to collaborate to figure out what do we do, what do we say, how do we react to this and respond. So we tried to congregate in the aisles and have a meeting. And it turns out that the flight attendants don't like it when you congregate in the aisles and have a meeting. Imagine so they shoot us all back to our seat, go sit down, you know, everything's okay. And we're no, no, the internet's broken. We need to help. And they're like, Well, you're on an airplane right now, you go sit back down again. So you know the story continues to go. We continue to try to work on it through text message. We're struggling. So we thought maybe we could congregate in the galley. And they would (laughs) let us stand in the galley in the back of the plane. So we all went to the back of the plane. We congregated in the galley. We tried to have another meeting. And once again, the uh, kind representative uh, of the uh, JetBlue airline let us know that the FAA rules specifically forbid you from congregating in the galley. So back (laughs) to our seats we went. Now, That day, the weather was horrible in Boston, and we got stuck circling Boston for almost an hour, just waiting to land. And when we finally did land— did not
0: want you to fix this problem. Not
1: so much. (laughs) I mean, it was pouring rain. It was freezing cold. The wind was whipping, and and we ended up getting together in the bowels of Logan Airport down at the uh, baggage claim area. And folks were getting their bags, and one of the guys plays guitar. Had his guitar with him, and it was soaked from just being left out in the rain on the tarmac while they were pulling stuff apart. And he's taking napkins. I mean, it was a really surreal situation. As we hammered out, what do we do? How do we how do we describe the threat? How do we describe how Akamai is protected or not protected? How do we help customers and 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 ourselves to make sure that the internet is okay? It was about midnight, and we hammered out our basic plan of what we would execute over the weekend and and began to execute on that plan to uh, ensure ourselves that we were in a good place and also to ensure our customers that if they took an attack that we would be ready to protect them, and here's the steps you should take to prepare yourself.
0: About how long did it take from – start to finish, once you, you got everything situated down there in baggage claim to execution over the weekend, how long did it take you to get caught up on things and get that resolved?
1: It, it takes a, a small army. And so there's a lot of folks that are working in different areas between collaborating with the other vendors out there, like Dine and, and, and other folks that we're seeing attack to try mm-hmm. to understand the details, collaborating with law enforcement on the other side to get, get and give insight with them. And then a number of folks just working with customers to try to field their questions, try to explain where and how Akamai was having an impact on the attack as it happened. We didn't see the attack against our systems, but we have some DNS resiliency that helped some clients. Uh, and really just trying to figure out how we could back things up, how we could help Dine to avoid another attack and just share some of the knowledge there. It was a it was a hectic time. And... Uh, I think we learned a lot from from that activity both in terms of what worked and what didn't work.
0: So what were some of those lessons you learned? What, what were standout lessons?
1: There? You know, there's a there's a demand for information immediately even in the midst of an attack and often the fog of war if you will, the 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 the, the confusion that's caused when you're fighting attack causes you to get a lot of bad information and that the the need to share but the fear of having bad information really clashed with each other. And one of the things that we took away from that was you need to share right away. Even if you have bad information, you're, you're better off saying we have bad information, but here's what we're looking at or we suspect our information is bad. But these are the directions that we're going in and that we're busy analyzing rather than taking the time to get the answer right. Because that really causes folks to worry and be concerned that maybe you're not even looking at the problem
0: okay have you ever had a chance since then to actually put that that type of thought process into motion
1: we have and we've since at akamai we've since enhanced our service incident process you know our really incident response and incident handling process to better deal with communications in these circumstances to be more timely in our communication and to be more consistent with the communication vehicles that we use so one of the issues we had was where do I go to get the communications up to the minute? There's a bunch of different places I could look, but where's really the official latest spot?
0: Or the most updated,
1: accurate information yeah. portal.
0: So going from one botnet to another, I'm going to talk about uh, this, this thing called Reaper. And unlike Mirai that was using default credentials and everything like this, Reaper is a, an IoT botnet that's actually exploiting uh, hardware. So according to NetLab 360 who discovered it on September 13th we're looking the 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 original reports and I say original because there's there's a reason for that bear with me um the original reports were you know like a million some odd bot uh, uh devices were infected by this later in the month of October uh F5 came out and said that uh the the count was uh, a million, three point five million devices. Uh, so the early reports, of one million. The growth rate was like something like eighty five thousand, you know, devices a day. And what really struck me about reports from Reaper, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, maybe I'm just being too you know, blah about everything, was the fact that the original code really had nothing malicious in it. The code itself for the botnet was literally there just to Compromise other devices and spread. There's no attack code. There's nothing, nothing really horrible about it, aside from the fact it's compromising devices. So you have this massive botnet and it's just sitting there. It's not doing anything. So why is everybody panicked about it? Especially when you consider that some of these device manufacturers are actually patching the problem—they're—they're, they're, you know, releasing fixes for this. And so I asked Josh about this, and we, we were—we were talking before we came on, and you've got some new information for me. So tell me what you know about Reaper.
1: So I, I think that the notion of Reaper, this concept of moving away from just the foolishness that was exploited with Mirai of open telnet ports and well-known passwords you move into exploits of vulnerabilities, which I, I've been fearing for since Mirai went away, that this would be the next way that a big botnet gets herded and pulled together. So when the story came out, I, like most other security professionals, went straight to paranoia. And we live in this paranoid world as security pros, and it's hard to fault us for it because we see a lot of bad things no. happen. Yeah. <laughs> now, we started digging into the reports from Reaper. We got some collaboration from other folks in the industry, started sharing some data, and started looking around. And what we had, what we learned fairly quickly was that the numbers were extrapolated numbers, not observed numbers. And that's because a lot of the, the vendors out there that sell gear don't have visibility into everything that traverses through all their systems. They sell their product, people implement it, and then they're not all tied together. Akamai has got a bit of a different position on the internet where we take a look at probably about a third of the traffic on the internet all day every day and we're able to decrypt that traffic so we're able to see exactly what's going on there and we don't need to extrapolate we can actually count what's really happening on the internet so we took and got our hands on some of the malware looked at how that malware worked and started to look for uh, indicators of scanning activity on the internet similar to what we'd done with Mirai in the past, mm-hmm. trying to find how many devices were scanning the internet based on the code that we'd seen. Mm-hmm. And we saw a peak of about 37,000, 38,000 devices scanning the internet on a, on a weekly basis over the last month or so, and that's since dropped down to about 1200 IPs a day. So the, the numbers are dropping and that's probably exactly what you're talking about. The systems are getting patched and so the vulnerabilities are being closed and the capability of these devices to be exploited is dropping down. But there's a real danger here in extrapolating data out from a small sample set to try to represent the entire internet. You may end up with a you know hundred X or thousand X multiple of what's really going on.
0: So let's set aside the, the obvious why, as in marketing and, and PR hype. What good is extrapolation in this case? I mean, it, it, we've got a, a threat that was really hyped up, but turned out to be nothing, no threat at all. So what good was extrapolating?
1: Well, maybe some of the hype around it helped to drive the patching faster. And so it's possible that that hype really did help to start to close the door on the on the problem. But there's also a fear in the security industry of not saying something when you think yeah. you know something. And when Mirai came around, I, I think the industry was very much caught by surprise. And we saw those 600 gig and then one terabit attacks. Nobody knew that was coming that was that had any credibility behind them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in this case, there seemed to be some early indicators. Folks wanted to get the word out. I'm not sure that it was irresponsible at all for them to do that, but it did end up a little bit overblown. And maybe we should have been more careful that we were extrapolating data rather than representing real data.
0: So we've got compromised devices. We've got weak and default credentials. IoT seems to be the buzzword of the year. Nobody wants to let it go. I try and try to get them to do so, and it just doesn't happen. Where do you see the next level threats for IoT coming from?
1: So where my my concerns are in a couple of different directions. Uh, I think a lot about DDoS and I think a lot about automation trying to commit fraud on the Internet. And Mm -hmm. if you can bring a whole bunch of devices that are fairly powerful machines into a botnet and you can leverage those to do some of these things, DDoS, web fraud, and do those without disrupting the device, so your thermostat still works as a thermostat, your trash can still works as an Internet-connected trash can, your refrigerator still (laughs) does its thing. The consumers aren't going to care, right? They're not really going to care that their device is participating in an attack campaign when it's still ordering the milk, when the milk runs out in the refrigerator. (laughs) So I have fear there that will proliferate these unsecure devices. And even if there's a patching option, folks aren't going to take it. So there's there's that end to it. And then the other end is you've got an awful lot of sophisticated devices that are meaningful that are getting connected to the Internet. Medical equipment, shipping equipment and the the potential there for things to be compromised. You know, think of a future when automobiles are communicating with each other and doing a crash avoidance by talking to each other. Just think if you could get in and mess with that signal you could probably create a lot of havoc, so I've got concerns in sort of both directions: the consumer side where nobody cares, and the more meaningful industrial medical side where folks really do care. But one good attack could be fairly devastating. Yeah,
0: you know, I used to to make this joke with IoT that you know the the adage will be: "Is your refrigerator running?" Yeah, well, it's ddosing my exchange <laughs> server. Can you please stop? And the thing is, that used to be a joke because it didn't seem like a reality, but now. Certain fact that I forget the name of the manufacturer, but they have a a Twitter enabled refrigerator that was used to DDoS things that just I mean, it it blows your mind. And and the thing is, I think you're absolutely right. Most consumers, even if a patch is available, they're not they're not going to do it because if that patch, you know, breaks the ice cube function or like you said, makes it stop ordering milk. They're going to be upset.
1: Yeah, and how are you even going to know? Are you really now, reading the email that comes from the refrigerator company? Yeah. And it, probably not, right? You probably avoided giving them your email. In the yeah, first I was
0: going to say, it, that all assumes that you actually registered your refrigerator when you bought it to begin with.
1: That's right. Now, Steve, we, I don't want to be all gloom and doom about this because we do to all tend to run home firewalls, right? And our yep. internet service provider brings us a home firewall, and the NAT that that provides tends to make it hard for these devices that we run in our house to get compromised. And where we see them getting compromised is one or two other, two situations. We see folks putting these things outside the firewall. Yep. So they may have a few uh, public IP addresses that they're given, and for some reason they put their security system on the public side because mm-hmm. they think it's a good idea to connect it easier from home or something like that.
0: Or they expose it so they can remotely manage it while they're sitting at the office and they dial they, into they it. They
1: purposefully expose it that way. But mm-hmm. a lot of these devices support UPnP. Yeah. And so you end up with the firewall, the device opening its own port in the firewall sort of silently without, you know, a regular consumer even understanding what that is. Yep. And that creates a hole that potentially could allow some inbound communication in to compromise the devices. So but it's not quite as bad as every IoT device is vulnerable and susceptible. Even if they are vulnerable, sitting behind a firewall helps. But if that firewall's not there, or it's been open opened yeah, by the device, if it's been you have opened, a it's,
0: it's it's wide there for you. So somebody actually, uh, I was talking to someone, I can't remember who, off the top of my head, but they were uh, talking about IoT risks and um, Jesse. Jessie Soros Rex on Twitter, uh, the the one the expert on passwords, she's brilliant. But she had a, a great idea with IoT, putting them on guest networks. So most routers, when you get it from, from home and you've got your, your ISP set up, you could set up like guest Wi-Fi, right? It's not really connected to anything. To me. What do you think of that? Like letting some of the trivial stuff sit on the guest Wi-Fi instead of even connecting it to you and limiting what it can access to and how.
1: It definitely limits your risk profile in terms of one of your devices turning against you as the consumer. But it probably doesn't do much in terms of that device turning against the internet as a whole, whether it's being used again to commit web fraud or being used as a you know participant in a DDoS campaign. Because yeah, you do need to give these things internet access so they can go out and do their jobs.
0: Yeah, I think when the conversation between she and I was more keeping it from being turned against me. But yeah, I, I agree with that. You'd still have to keep up with patching and things like that. Otherwise, it's still sitting there. Yeah. What about um, devices that you have no choice but to expose them? Like there was a security system from an ISP I won't name that you could not set it up without having a public IP. It had it had to be the public IP. What does what does a consumer do in that situation? I mean, do you just not get it if you you know look for something else or what do you think?
1: I think that the consumer just goes for the device and, again, doesn't care because it doesn't have much of an impact on them. And that's the problem we have here is one of incentives. Yeah. The consumer's not incentivized to worry about the problem that's being caused as long as it's not turning against them. And frankly, if it's outside their firewall, they're sort of better off in the turning against them problem. Yeah, It's the turning against the internet that the consumer's not liable for, the ISP's not liable for, the device vendor's not liable for. Right. It's effectively a problem that only the victim suffers from. Yeah. And I think those dynamics need to be changed, and I know that's incredibly complicated and politically difficult, but you know, sitting for 20 years in the security industry, really watching the problem not get any better, you start to wonder if those folks that are complicit in the problem who bring these these products to market, and everybody's going to have bugs. We can't expect people to bring products with no vulnerabilities. No. But we can expect people to bring products that have an automated update mechanism, particularly for consumers where the consumer doesn't need to know or care that there's an update available. It just happens.
0: Yep. Yep. I agree with completely. So, listen, thanks for coming out to talk with us. I appreciate that. This has been Salted Hash, and again, my name is Steve Reagan. If you'd like to learn more about IoT threats or anything else, check us out at CSOonline.com.